This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, joined by Dave Green. Dave, we've been doing this a long time. It's almost historic. (laughs) It is historic. Bob, you were just telling me just before we hit the click button to record this particular podcast that we will talk about tragedy at some given point in the next 30 minutes. We will. Tragedy is always a topic that attracts uh, readers with the kind of uh, history books that I write. And I mentioned to you, and I'll bring it up, uh, the the topic of a tragedy is very popular, except, of course, the people to whom the tragedy happened. Let's say it was a murder or something untoward and so on and so forth. And, um, well, that's that's the way it is. You try to be sensitive to that. But in general, people want to hear about it. And these tragedies are sort of imprinted on the minds of people. But we're not going to talk about tragedies right away. No, we are. We're going to start really with books and Christmas. Yes, uh, books for Christmas, for holiday giving. There are three books I'd like to draw attention to. Of course, my own. I mean, what the heck? My my book, uh, Lost After uh, All, Valley, which we've talked about before, deals with the carpet industry. Sousa, Senator, and Sullivan. I got a little triple S there. Uh, John Philip Sousa is in the book. George Senator, who was uh, Jack Ruby's roommates in the book, and Ed Sullivan, the uh, big television impresario, is in the book, along with Sam Goldwyn of the movie industry and William Yurton, an inventor. So lots of stories in Lost Mohawk Valley. But another book that's available now, and I've had something to do with its uh, creation, but it was written by the late Hugh Donlan, who was a reporter and a columnist for the Amsterdam Recorder, also author of what is still uh, the uh, best history of Amsterdam, even though it was written over 30 years ago, uh, Donlan's 1980 Annals of a Milltown. But Hugh Donlan also wrote a book in the 1930s called Lost Mohawk Valley, which was never published. Not that he didn't try. He did try. And we've uh, honestly had a Uh, an historian's episode about this with a man named Dave Brownell, who ended up in the past year editing the typescript of Lost Mohawk Valley and getting it published up in Rochester, where he he lives. Uh, And now the book is available. Uh, Lost, um, I'm sorry, it's not Lost Mohawk Valley. It's Mohawk Valley, The Mohawk Valley by Hugh Donlan, is the title of that particular book. It's available primarily in Amsterdam at the Elwood Museum, Old Peddler's Wagon, and the Book Hound, and maybe some some other spots. And it's a comprehensive history of the Mohawk Valley, stretching from Schenectady all the way up to Utica. And what really kind of astounded me, I have read it, uh, what Hugh Donlan uh, wrote back in the 1930s was primarily about events that happened before the American Revolution. I mean, the over half the book uh, deals with the Ice Age, uh, wars among the various Indian nations, wars between uh, the British and the, and the French. So he really uh, heavily uh, relies or, or deals with that particular uh, part of uh, life or part of the history of the Mohawk Valley. And he tried to get the book published uh, when it was written, it was finished in the uh, 1940, but he couldn't get anybody to publish it. Uh, so he put it aside, and uh, Dave Northrup and I were able to get 
the TypeScript because I've come to know over the years one of Hugh Donlan's sons, uh, John Donlan, who became a nuclear submarine commander, of, of all things, a very uh, a great gentleman, and he was uh, kind enough to let us have the TypeScript. He made uh, copies of it, and again, Dave edited the book, and it's uh, now available. You might say, Dave, it's kind of a collector's item. I, I would think so. Bob, I thought for a second when you were telling us about the Ice Age, you personally knew somebody from that. I think, no, not quite that old. Well, no, but the the Cohoes Mastodon kind of figures in this, isn't it? Personal friend. Yeah, personal friend. After a few years, you really begin to believe it. Yes. So that's The Mohawk Valley by Hugh Donlan. Uh, it uh, cost uh, twenty four ninety five, and again, it's available at the Elwood Museum, Walter Elwood Museum, 100 uh, Church Street in Amsterdam. Also at the old Peddler's Wagon, 175 Church Street, Book Hound on East Main Street, and the uh, Amsterdam Free Library, I believe, has a copy for uh, circulation. I am curious about something. When he tried to publish the book, who at the time was the big publisher? Well, I I know t- I don't know if they were the, they weren't necessarily the big publishers, but I think he went to some big publishers. I would say in those days, some of the names we know now, like Doubleday. Random House, um, Harper Publishing, but the names still exist. But then they were actually, I would say, relatively small companies owned by families. Now they're all part of big conglomerates. But what he ended up doing was trying to get the state to publish it, state of New York, the education department. And then he went to Union College, and after that he gave up. And his son uh, kept it. But, you know, it's well-written. He's a good writer. I mean, obviously, it's a book that was written many years ago, there's, so there's nothing in a, in the book about what happened during World War II and, af- and afterward uh, in the Mohawk Valley. It's called The Mohawk Valley by Hugh Donlan. The third book I want to mention, we've also featured on the Historian's Podcast with an interview of the author. It should be out by now, I would say. Uh, Mike Sinquanti of Amsterdam uh, was uh, going to the uh, printer the last I knew with the book, and uh, it was supposed to be out sometime in this month of November. And the book is going to be called One Year's Worth of Amsterdam Birthdays. One Year's Worth of Amsterdam Birthdays. And what Mike does, Mike's a native of Amsterdam, uh, involved in, in various business enterprises, but he likes to write. Uh, and he's, well, uh, this is an aside, but he's a great sports fan. And he started focusing on birthdays, putting out a book and then uh, a blog on the birthdays of the New York Yankees, all the individual members of the New York Yankees. But this Amsterdam book, he's been blogging for some time now on his uh, AmsterdamNYBirthdays.com. That's the birthday blog, AmsterdamNYBirthdays.com. But when the book appears, it'll have kind of expanded biographies of the 321 people plus uh, pictures. I really think, Dave, this book is going to be a big seller when it hits the stands right in Amsterdam, of course. I mean, it's specifically geared uh, just to the city of Amsterdam. I I could see uh, Mike selling out you know, right, right after it comes out. Built-in audience when you're talking baseball, Bob. Yes, well, baseball was very good for him, um, and he he did you know quite well with his baseball books. But again, this book uh, has 321 uh, people described in it 
who have some connection to Amsterdam. And I'll just mention one of them. And this is a story from Mike's book. I don't know if he brought I don't I don't think he brought up this story when he was um, on the show. But Tom uh, Constantino uh, is profiled in uh, Mike's new book. Uh, Tom's deceased, but his the anniversary of his birth was a little while ago. And the takeaway point, Dave, the short of it, as you sometimes say, Tom Constantino came up with the idea of the litter bag. Somebody needed to do it. (laughs) They did. Now, Tom came to Amsterdam from Hudson, New York, where his father had owned a produce store, and Tom started selling... Wait, 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 hold on one second. The litter bag, you're talking the litter bag that now has become the bag we use all the time even for groceries. Well, they made those The plastic bag. The plastic bag. But when I say the litter bag, I mean specifically the little bag that you'd hang... Hang from your dashboard. Hang on the dashboard. All right. I think... You know, for various reasons, I think cars maybe don't use them as much as they did. But when he came up with it, which I want to say was back in the 60s or 70s, it was really, uh, you know, a new idea. He just kind of just sort of came to him and his company became one of the big producers of it. So, again, that's another short of it. But originally, Tom um, was in what they call the ad specialty business and he came to Amsterdam. I don't know if he came to Amsterdam because of this, but it just so happens that Amsterdam is also home to one of uh, the most well-known specialty advertising companies in America, which is called Amsterdam Printing. Amsterdam Printing, which is uh, used to be in the city. It's now up uh, in the town of Amsterdam on Wallens Corners Road. This was a company started by Ben Singer, uh, then continued by his descendant, Herb Singer. It's now owned by an another company, and they they sell uh, advertising specialties, primarily pens. If you want a pen day that says Eastline Studio, chances are you can get a good price for that from uh, from Amsterdam Printing. Everything you've mentioned so far, Bob, I put in the oldie but goodie category. <laughs> That's true. You know, when so, you when you mentioned hooking the, the litter bag to the uh, radio knob in the on the dashboard, you know, I was like, Hey, Dad, you forgot your litter bag here. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it's built-in nostalgia. That's true. And the, even the litter bag's nostalgic. But people still buy a lot of <clears throat> calendars and pens and so forth for Amsterdam from Amsterdam Printing. Now, I don't know if Tom was actually working for Amsterdam Printing, but he was selling advertising specialties. And he was driving from one sales call to another, writes Mike Sinquani, when he realized that an ad message inside the car would be extremely valuable. That's what we used to say about radio advertising, Dave. People listen to the radio on their way to buy things. And he said inside the car is where people are when they go to buy something. So he started brainstorming ideas for an ad specialty that would go inside the car. He didn't come up with a litter bag right away. His first idea uh, was for a tissue pack. And maybe you remember these. I do. Which you had to clip or something to the um, to the visor, yes. Clip to the visor. Yeah, another oldie but goodie. And and you'd have your message. You know, it'd say Eastline Studio on the uh, on the Kleenex. And people, uh, I think, still use them. Yes, these clip-on items. Some people do. But then his idea from the litter bag resulted that people who use the tissue pack had to be able to dispose of these tissues in some way. 
So he said that way would be uh, was would be the litter bag, and it really became the start of his company, which still exists. Uh, Mr. Constantino's deceased, but his still his company still is in uh, Amsterdam, uh, and they were known for making litter bags. They they do other kinds of things, which I'd be maybe hard pressed to say what they are, but they're still in the advertising specialty business, and. Um, Tom Constantino's litter bag was officially proclaimed the environmental symbol of a more responsible America by Keep America Beautiful in 1977. Iron Eyes Cody. That's right. And in fact, Tom Constantino used Iron Eyes Cody in his advertising. Or, you know, he had... Uh, and he had him come to Amsterdam and um, and so forth. And he was he's that Indian who cries when he sees the pollution out there. So. Another oldie but goodie. Another oldie and but goodie. And by the way, before the litter bag, I would like to thank everyone who threw their tissues on my property. That's true. You, you find the, <laughs> Solved you, a lot you, of problems. Yeah. In fact, maybe people need more litter bags nowadays. Uh, I think they do. They're all throwing all kinds of what, stuff What they really there. need to do is put, put ashtrays back in cars. Well, that could be. You, you can the, buy them. Yeah, you don't have them anymore. No, they don't make them anymore. Ashtrays yeah. are not included as a, as a given item in an automobile, but you can go on Amazon, buy one that fits in the cup holder. Yes. But, but why bother? Think. You can still throw them on my property. That's right. That's always the option. <laughs> that's always the option. Throw them on your property. Yeah. So that's just one of the 300 and some stories in Mike Sinquanti's Amsterdam birthday book. Others uh, include, uh, oh, I'll just name a few names. School superintendent Ray Carpenter, teacher Florence Collins, who's 104, uh, Tom Leavenworth of Larrabee's department store, war heroes Mike Makarowski and Richard Marnell, lawyer Joe Jacobs, and a well-known Capital Region sportscaster, Rip Rowan, who's a native of Amsterdam. It's called uh, the Amsterdam Birthday Book. It'll be out uh, soon, if it's not out already, by Mike Sinquanti. If you want to know what the people in the Mohawk Valley are doing, they're either writing books or reading books. That's true. There there does seem to be a, a large number of people that are writing books. In fact, I did a book signing up in Johnstown, great little bookstore, Mysteries on Main. This is another aside. Uh, Mysteries on Main and Street. And a good name. Yeah. Well, it, they're not the only bookstore in the country with that name, in all honesty. But they are on Main Street in Johnstown. I think it's 144 West Main. And a lady and her husband run it, Priscilla and Lee. But right now, the manager is this wonderful woman. And you can tell some of the people that work in bookstores are just so committed to the bookstore. And this lady's name is Patty. And you can tell as soon as you walk in the door, she just loves her job. In fact, she loves it so much that she and her husband now live over the bookstore. Well, you, you, you need to find the person who likes to read. You know, it's a little bit like the guy who got caught in the uh, episode of the, the, the Twilight Zone. You know, he, he was fine with nuclear war. He got caught in the, in the as you recall, he was caught inside the uh, bank Vault. Right, vault. Yeah. yeah, and in the meantime, while he was in there, nuclear war occurred. He didn't care. He liked to read because he was in there with all the <laughs> – there was a large collection of books. But, of course, the kicker that Rod Serling threw in was, as you may remember, he, he, he finally gets out but breaks his glasses and can't see. Oh, that's you true. You don't remember do that remember episode that. of Twilight? Yeah. Well, anyway, I do remember yeah, that. Those who I like do. to read are in heaven forever. That's true. Well, I know that Patty likes to read, and people who like to read stop at her store. Um the 
uh, I, I want to say the big league author who's a patron of Mysteries on Main Street is the novelist Richard Russo. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's he, he wrote Iron... Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> he didn't write Ironweed. Uh, he writes stories primarily about the Mohawk Valley and, and uh, Gloversville. He wrote uh, this the book on which uh, Nobody's Fool, the Paul Newman movie, uh, was based, and uh, Bridge of Sighs and many other books. Uh, he came from Glovers, Gloversville, next to Johnstown, and whenever he's back in town, he usually stops at Mysteries on Main and signs their books, you know, signs his books that are there, just to make sure they have plenty of signed copies. I did the same, Dave, even though I'm not such a big author. I, well, you're, well, you're getting there, Bob. I don't think. Well, anyway. You certainly it, do keep busy. That's right. But I just wanted to point out sort of a potpourri on the historians today. Mysteries on Main, a great bookstore. I imagine a lot of people maybe in the summer or if they're winter tourists are familiar with that because it's right there in the foothills of the Adirondacks. But now uh, for the rest of uh, this historians, we're going to turn the topic to tragedy which uh, we discussed at the beginning. Uh, this is based on a fo- one of my Focus on History columns uh, from the, the Daily Gazette, uh, talking about three tragedies which occurred in Amsterdam. And the idea for this particular column came from one of my uh, history scouts, who sometimes uh, gives me uh, ideas such as this one, a gentleman named Sam Vomero, Sam Vomero. And he said that three tragedies which occurred in Amsterdam during his lifetime, haunt him to this day. I'll just give you the titles of, of each and then more on the individual ones. The Schuyler Street Fire, Eight Killed by Speeding Train, and The Fire on High Street. Now, the Schuyler Street Fire uh, took the most lives of this trilogy of tragedies in uh, Amsterdam. Twelve people died. 11 of them young children, in a fire that started about 1 in the morning on February 1st, 1955, in a wood-framed tenement on Schuyler Street in the East End. The blaze apparently began when an oil burner overflowed. After firefighters arrived, a 50-gallon oil drum exploded. The building housed 24 people. Back in those days, in 1955, I don't know if this was true. It wasn't true in our family. We heated with coal. But sometimes people living in these large apartment buildings or, or tenements had oil burners, and you often had a source of the oil, you know, the, the tank right outside your apartment door. Which still, was, still, true the, still true to this day in many residences, especially in the country. Okay, and that was one of the things that made this fire worse, that it started in an oil burner, and then there was one uh, 50-gallon drum that exploded. There were rumors that more had exploded because, you know, it was such a devastating and fast-moving fire, but the firefighters never found more than the, the one uh, extra drum. The people who died were identified as Juan Rivera. He was 40, and his five children ranging in age from 1 to 14. Two children of Mr. and Mrs. Stanley Heaton, and they were aged six months and three years, and four children of a man named Stanley Motika, ranging in age from 6 through 14. Five people were injured in the fire. And recall that the victims included, the people who died, included Juan Rivera 
and five of his children. What about his wife? Well, this was another poignant thing. Juan Rivera's wife, Maria, was not home that night. She had been hospitalized the day before, so she was not at the fire. And the photographer for the recorder, Paul Masto, in the recorder, had this very like devastating picture of the woman. You know, he, he took a picture of her at the hospital. I mean, she just looks, I don't know, like she nothing. I mean, she's inconsolable. And she told a reporter about what happened to her family. I understand they're all gone. Also, I mentioned that four children of Stanley Motika died. Again, I don't know if there was a Mrs. Motika or if she, um, or she, she's not listed among the, the victims. But Stanley Motika himself, even though four of his children died, he and a 10-year-old son escaped by jumping from a second-floor window. The son broke his ankle when, when they jumped. Also at the fire, an unidentified youth saved residents by raising the hue and cry and getting them out of the building. And two barking dogs named Rocky and Pal were credited with rousing their owners who then escaped the smoke and flames. The assistant fire chief, Samuel Palumbo, said, I'm not exaggerating when I say that flames were leaping halfway across Schuyler Street. The roof of the tenement collapsed as firefighters fought the blaze in frigid temperatures accompanied by falling snow. Then recorder photographer Paul Masto, I mentioned that he took the picture of uh, Mrs. Rivera, who was at the hospital at the time of the fire. And Paul Masto was nominated, but he did not win. But he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for pictures taken at the fire scene. And I would have to say, Dave, that this fire, you know, especially for people kind of of my generation, because I would have been about 10 years old then, that's the one that people all remember to this day. Honestly, I do not, but I've talked to other people. One person who, of course, remembered this was um, Mike Mancini. We used to work with Mike, and he ended up being a battalion chief in the fire department, and his dad was a funeral director, and I believe his his dad had a lot to do with you know the um, funeral arrangements for the victims of the fire. The second tragedy, eight killed by speeding train. Eight Mexican workers were killed on June 15, 1945, when struck by a speeding water-level limited passenger train as the Mexican workers were doing track maintenance just east of Amsterdam. The Mexicans were in America working on the railroad because so many American men were at war. The bodies of the eight workers were taken to St. Mary's Cemetery in Fort Johnson in a procession of eight hearses. People lined the streets to express their sorrow. The dead were buried in an unmarked mass grave. But they were from Mexico. You know, they don't know about how it was handled and how if their, I presume their families were notified, but that they were buried in, uh, in Amsterdam. And years later, a woman that uh, it was actually was a is a classmate of mine, and she's a very uh, upstanding citizen. And listen to what she did. Years later, Diane Hale Smith of Amsterdam did research on the accident, and Diane told me, "quote I located 
the unmarked burial place of the Mexican workers using cemetery records and made arrangement for a headstone and urn to be put over the mass grave. No one had done that, you know, when, the, when they died and were buried. So she has marked the grave of the Mexican workers. And uh, Diane said, quote, I imagined how future generations would hear the story of how these men had died so far from home. It symbolized for me so many of our ancestors who ventured far from home, never to return again. My own Swedish grandfather, to name just one. They all, uh, the Mexican workers, had a part in building America. These eight men were building our rail system and lost their lives doing it. Very kind. Yeah, it was very kind of Diane to do that. And the third tragedy, fire on High Street. Uh, that's a, a section of Amsterdam also in the, what's called the uh, East End. It's just above, uh, well, when you come into Amsterdam now, it's just above Route 5. To, uh, and interesting, I have a footnote on this. To this day, it's home to many um, Hispanic families. But this uh, this woman I, who and her family who died, I believe, were of Italian origin. A widow and her five children were killed when once again a portable oil stove exploded in their 26 High Street home, November 24th, 1938. That was Thanksgiving night. The woman's name, Carrie DeRosa. She was 27. Her children ranged in age from two to nine years. Neighbors who heard an explosion about 11.30 p.m. Thanksgiving night rushed in and found DeRosa lying near the door. The children were crying for their mother to help them. It was assumed the family had been gathered around the stove when the explosion sent burning oil in all directions. The victims were alive when the firefighters arrived. The mother and children were taken to the hospital, but died at intervals a short time after the explosion. What made this doubly a tragedy, the father of the family, James DeRosa, had died in July 1938 when he fell from a metal structure he was working on that spanned the Chuctanunda Creek. When Mr. DeRosa fell, he landed on jagged rocks in the creek bed and met his death. After this column uh, ran, Dave, I, I heard from an Amsterdam native, Phil Rodriguez, you know, of uh, Latino origin. He's currently the, he's an attorney now, and he's the Charlton Town Justice. And he was telling me he grew up on High Street, was a 1950 graduate of Amsterdam High. So he was a little boy when the fire on High Street occurred, and he remembered uh, that very vividly. But also, he knew something about the Mexican train workers. Uh, growing up in a Latino family, Phil Rodriguez could speak Spanish. And these Mexican workers weren't in Amsterdam just for one day. Apparently, they'd come for some time working on the, on the railroad tracks. And they used to play soccer at this playing field uh, near High Street, near... Phil Rodriguez's home. So he went up there and he talked to them because he could converse in their language and he also uh, played soccer with them. So those are the stories of the three tragedies in Amsterdam. If uh, people are interested in uh, reading those stories or my other columns, I don't mention this too often, uh, but I should. Uh, all, most all of my columns from the Daily Gazette are archived 
on MohawkValleyWeb.com. That's MohawkValleyWeb.com. It's a searchable database, and you can uh, look up things to, uh, to find out about different columns I've written about history. This is a uh, website which is maintained by a uh, Fulton Montgomery Community College professor and kind of political activist, uh, Frank Yunker. So it's uh, MohawkValleyWeb.com. So I think the old clock on the wall, Dave, tells us we're getting toward the end of another episode of The Historians. Interesting, Bob, and enjoyed your stories. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you can hear The Historians. We have a new uh, episode for you most uh, every week, and we're on, uh, well, you know, because you've already downloaded it. We're on uh, bobcudmore.com forward slash The Historians. Also on SoundCloud and search for Eastline Studio. Don't forget, Dave, to favorite us uh, on your social media. Certainly. Pass it around uh, via the social networks. This has been The Historians. Bob Cudmore and Dave Green with you. Have a good day. <laughs>